This morning we are beginning a sermon series through the book of Leviticus, which I'm pretty excited about. It's true. Uh, and I have something up here that you would never, ever think existed. And it is a commentary on Leviticus for children. It's true. Leviticus, a commentary for children. It says it right there. And the reason I brought it up, I've, I've started reading through it with the boys. And I know Leviticus can be a little bit daunting for people. Uh, but, and, and maybe especially for kids, though maybe not as we get into it. We'll see. But uh, I thought uh, some of you might appreciate having something that you could read through with your kids as we work our way through the book to kind of go over it, bring up some of the things that we've been talking about on Sundays and, and wrestle through them together as a family. This might be a resource, this would be a resource that you could use to do that. If you're interested uh, in, in finding out about it, just come up and ask me afterwards. Um, this would be a good way just to... to Simply go through the book uh, with your kids as we go through it together. So, for what it's worth, come up afterwards and, and uh, I'll, we can talk about that. All right. We are uh, going to read a few verses out of Leviticus. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles on the back tables just outside the door. Feel free to grab one of those. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to grab one of those for right now, but to keep it, write your name in the front, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. As, uh, as we turn to God's Word, let's, let's pray together now. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we do pray that you would teach us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our minds, our thoughts, our hearts, that we would understand the things that we read as we work through the book of Leviticus, both today but in the weeks to come. We pray that uh, we would see Jesus here, uh, that we would understand how you were preparing the way for sending your Son, the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. We pray that you would allow us to see Jesus in all of his glory and that we would be then changed into that same glory from one degree of glory to another, that we might represent you then as we go out from this place in the world. Be with us now. Pour out your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read this morning just a few verses uh, from Leviticus. Uh, we're going to do an overview uh, this morning of the book, a sort of an introduction. We're not gonna hit on every theme that would, we'd be here a long time, but I'm gonna just give uh, sort of a basic orientation to the book of Leviticus. And really the verse we're gonna spend the most time on, one verse, Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, uh, but I'm gonna read a couple of verses. Uh, first, Leviticus 1, verses one and two. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Then Leviticus 10.10, 10, which says, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And then finally, Leviticus 19 verses one and two and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, 
speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's all about status. You know, when we hear the word status, we tend to think of Facebook, right? You update your status to tell people what's going on in life. But status is, is really about your, your place, your position in life. Whether you're rich or poor, or cool or uncool, or white collar or blue collar, or married or single, or black or white, or Jew or Gentile, or circumcised or uncircumcised. The status question is, have I made it? Uh, Where am I on the corporate ladder? Where am I on the food chain? Am I on the top or am I languishing on the bottom? Am I uh, better than or smarter than or stronger than or prettier than or richer than you? We measure status by our, our relative position in life, by our situatedness, my situatedness compared to your situatedness. We measure status by our relationships. Who are my parents, my spouse, my children, my friends? Did you know that I'm related to George Clooney? It's true, actually, it is. My stepfather's grandmother, Catherine Clooney, was first cousins to Rosemary Clooney, who is a famous actress in her own right, and who is George Clooney's mom. Okay, I know that's not very impressive. (laughs) But if George Clooney were my brother, right, then that would be something worth boasting about. Why is that? Because his status would kind of rub off on me a little bit. A little of his glory sort of would be mine by claiming, oh yeah, he's, he's my brother. Dave uh, sent me an article, wherever Dave is, there's Dave. Dave sent me an article this week, uh, Three Ways Our Culture is Different from Every Other Culture in History. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a brief article, but the third way was uh, that life is starved of transcendence. And what that means is we, we lack, but we desperately need some sense of something beyond this life, a sense of something else, right? Something more, something bigger, something holy. And this is uh, preeminently true when it comes to status, right? Without some objective transcendent reference point, All I can do is compare myself and measure myself against other people in the world. My status is measured by my relative position in the world because we have nothing outside of this world to reference. See, a sense of transcendence gives objectivity, a a reference point. uh, And apart from any reference point outside the world, all we have left is sort of the many subjective competing reference points in the world. That is one another. We compare ourselves to one another. Of course, that means my status or my identity is constantly threatened, right? Because every conflict and every competition, every change in life threatens me at my core. Our status is in flux because my position in life is in flux. We need a sense of the transcendent. You won't find the word transcendent in the Bible Uh, But the Bible does have a word for transcendent. It's the word holy. People uh, have been asking me a lot recently, why study Leviticus? Why this book? And I I finally come up with a succinct answer. 
though maybe it's not the most helpful because it's so succinct. But I think that which we most easily skip is, is often that which we most desperately need. You know, if, if you know your Bible well, you turn to what you need when you're in trouble, right? If you, are, if you need comfort, you turn to Psalm 23. If you need wisdom, you turn to the book of Proverbs. If you need an evangelistic verse, you turn to John 3.16. But, of course, that's when we know what we need. I think Leviticus is that book that we didn't know we needed. We don't understand it, so we, we don't think we need it, so we skip it, right? I mean, we, we come to Leviticus... And, and we read the first, you know, two verses that the Lord called to Moses and said, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And um, we think this is, this is not practical. <laughs> this is not, there, there is no immediate payoff here. And so we move on to something more easily and immediately applicable. Leviticus is about the holy. Right? It, it, it is about transcendence. It is about drawing near to the holy and then going out from the holy into the world. I think we need Leviticus because it gives us a framework for how to think about our our situatedness in life without being controlled by that situatedness. Leviticus focuses, focuses us on approaching the holy so that we can then live holy lives in the midst of the mundane. All right, have I, have I sold you yet? I, I was talking at home this week about how excited I was about Leviticus, and it seems that some in my house thought I was being sarcastic. And so I had to say, no, no, really, I, I'm excited. And my job, I said, is to get everyone else excited about Leviticus as well. And Nathaniel, without skipping a beat, said, that's going to be a hard job. <laughs> Well, this morning, we are just going to dip our toes just a little bit into Leviticus. We're just going just gonna to whet our appetite just a, just a touch. Our outline this morning, which you can see uh, in the back of your bulletin, is we're going to talk about the context, the content, and the call of Leviticus. Broad sweeps, right? A little bit of generalizations. We'll go into the details in the weeks and months to come. But first, we're going to talk about the context, the content, and the call. First, the the context. In some ways, to understand Leviticus, we have to back up as, as far as possible. We have to get the story so far for Leviticus. If you are reading through your Bible, right, you've read Genesis and Exodus leading up to this point, and they are important for understanding the book of Leviticus. You know, uh, Genesis chapter 1, right? God creates the heavens and the earth. It's, it's unformed and unfilled, and he begins this process in Genesis 1 of, of dividing, of creating boundaries. And then he fills each area of creation. And then finally, on the sixth day, God creates humanity to be caretakers and shepherds of his world. On the seventh day, God rests. He uh, stops and enjoys his work. And he sets apart the seventh day as holy. One in seven, one day in seven is set apart as different from the rest. And as God set apart one day in seven as holy time, God then plants a garden in Eden as a holy space. God places Adam and Eve in that garden to tend and to keep it, to make of Eden a little temple 
where God would meet with his people. And humanity's goal is to work in that holy place six days out of seven and then rest on the holy day for the purpose of enjoying God's work rather than accomplishing their own. Of course, as, as you know, the story, right, rather than fulfilling their role of protecting this holy garden of ruling over the animals, the serpent comes in and, and rules over them. The serpent deceives them into disobeying God. And, and the order of creation is, is upended, it's subverted. Rather than ruling the animals, the animals rule over them, and disorder begins to reign. And the very first sign of that is shame. Adam and Eve are created holy, naked, and without shame. And suddenly, after sin comes into the world, they feel more naked. They feel compelled to clothe themselves, to cover themselves. You see, their status has changed. They are no longer glorious and holy man and woman created in the image of God, but they're now unclean, and the image has been marred, and they experience shame. Worst of all, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're ejected from the holy place, no longer to meet with God. You may know the psalm, Psalm 24, which says, "'Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands.'" and a pure heart. Well, their disordered hearts have rendered them unclean and unfit for communion with a holy God, and so they are sent out into the wilderness. God didn't give up on humanity, though. Uh, God continues to, to care for and work with humanity. Eventually, God chooses Abraham from among all the peoples, and he makes to Abraham these outrageous promises. And, and he says, one day, Abraham's family is going to dwell with God in a new holy land. And Abraham's family, though, ends up in Egypt as slaves. But God brings them out. He brings them back into the wilderness, back out into the wilderness to meet with him on a holy mountain, Mount Sinai. And when they get there, this is what God says in Exodus 19. He says to his people Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God says, look, if you obey me, you will be my holy people. So we have a, a holy day in, in Genesis uh, 2. We have a holy place now we have a holy people, if they will obey. But of course, you know what happens. Before Moses comes down off the mountain, Israel is disobeying God, big time, right? Not just disobeying, but they're making an idol. They're bowing down and worshiping a golden calf. They're calling this unclean thing their God. And God gets angry, rightly so like a, a spurned lover. God tells Moses, go down the mountain because the people have corrupted themselves. God is done. Right? This, this is not the first time the people have rebelled. In just a few months, they've been out of Egypt. God is ready to wipe them out and start over with Moses. But Moses prays for them. He is their mediator, the one who intercedes on their behalf. And God listens to Moses' mediation and God forgives. But he tells Moses this interesting thing in Exodus 33. He, he says he's going to send Israel into the land, but he's not going to go with them. 
God says, I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God is trying to protect Israel. He says, if, if I go with you, I will strike you down. God is holy. Israel is sinful, unclean, stiff-necked. And so God is protecting his sinful people from his holy anger. Moses, though, intercedes again. And he prays. He says, if you don't go with us, don't send us up from here. And the reason he gives is, is what makes us different from any other nation if you don't go with us? It's your presence, right, in our midst. That's what we need. That's what makes us different. It's, it's you who brought us out of Egypt. It's you who can bring us into the promised land. We need you to fight our battles. You know, the nations may have strength and armies and riches and might and beauty and fame, but we need you. We need you to be our joy, you to be our God. We are nothing apart from your presence. And I, I wonder... It, what you think of Moses' words. God says, we'll give you the, I'll give you the promised land, I'll send you in, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses says, no, don't, don't, don't send us anywhere if you're not going to come with us. I don't want what the nations have. I want you. I want your presence. And I wonder where our hearts are this morning, right? Do you want what the nations have? Do you want what everybody else around you has? The truth of the matter is, if, if that's what you want, if you want, if you look around at, at the world and you, you see all of the things that the world has to offer and that's what you want, if so, the book of Leviticus probably won't mean much to you, right? No matter how much you study it. Because if, if you want what the nations have, right, you just have, to, you just have to be smart enough or strong enough or rich enough or pretty enough or whatever to go get it. But Moses doesn't want to be like the nations. He wanted to be distinct from the nations. He wanted a status that this world cannot supply. Do you want what everybody else has? Or do you want something different? If, I, if I'm honest with myself, my heart often craves what I see. And whether that's technology or expensive coffee or new clothes or the latest movie or obedient children, whatever it might be, all good things in and of themselves, but none are meant to be the desire of my soul. Psalm 4, verse 7 says, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What do you want? What, what do you crave? Do you want the grain and the wine of the nations? Right? The abundance that the world has to offer? or the joy that comes from God's right hand. Moses says, no, no, God, if you won't go with us, don't send us up from here. So God listens. And he continues with his plan in Exodus to make a tabernacle. Uh, a tabernacle is a tent, right? It, it, it comes from the Hebrew word to dwell. It's related to another Hebrew word for neighbor. And uh, God is going to become Israel's neighbor, right? He's going to dwell in their midst. Of course, the problem is Israel is still a stiff-necked people. At what point will God just up and leave? At what point will God just up and destroy them? You know, what will happen when there's no Moses around to step in on their behalf? Enter Leviticus. 
Leviticus is answering the question, how can we dwell with God? How can we approach him? And the short answer that Leviticus gives is by being holy. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about this. It says that it talks about the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's what the book of Hebrews says. Apart from holiness, no one will see the Lord. We need holiness. Okay, how can we dwell with God? Be holy. It's that simple, right? Of course, that's not very helpful, is it? Because what does that even mean? I mean, what is holiness? And how do I get it? Where does it come from? Again, that's what the book of Leviticus is all about. That brings us to to the content of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus is fundamentally about this one thing. It's about holiness. How do you draw near to a holy God? You must be a holy people. And, And Leviticus 10 verse 10 is really a great verse for understanding what Leviticus is all about. Uh, God says to Aaron the priest, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the clean and the unclean. Now that verse might not mean much to you at this moment. I I hope by the time we're done going through Leviticus, it it will have meaning if it doesn't right now. We're going to start today just by breaking that that verse down. God says to the priest, you are to distinguish between the, the holy and the common, the unclean, and the clean. We're going to start just by talking about the vocabulary of holiness. We're going to start by defining some of these words. What is holiness? You know, we tend to confuse holiness and righteousness, but they're not the same thing. What is the opposite of holy? Again, we tend to think the opposite of holiness is sin, right? That's where our minds go. That's where my mind goes. The opposite of holiness uh, is sin. And there there may be a sense in which that's true, but, and certainly if holiness were a synonym for righteousness, that would be true. But the opposite of holy, look at Leviticus 10.10, the opposite of holy is common. You can see that, by the way, in a diagram that's in your bulletin. There's a little insert with a diagram I like diagrams. I, I, I hesitated to put it in there because I don't want this to feel too much like a classroom. You're not going to be quizzed, but I, I, I like diagrams, and I think they're helpful, and uh, it may be worth holding on to that as we move through Leviticus, how to think about the, whole, the relationship between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean. The opposite of holy is common. Okay, what's that mean? What's common? Well, common is just life. It's life as we know it. It's the mundane. It's the ordinary. Uh, The common is is what we share in common with all people. The common is the created. What then is holy? God. God is holy. God alone is intrinsically holy. Because God alone is distinct from the common, from the mundane, from the created order. To be holy is to be not common. To be holy is to be transcendent. You and I are not holy. You and I can become holy, according to the scriptures, right? Anything consecrated, anything dedicated to God becomes holy. It becomes uniquely His. All the nations belong to God, he says in Exodus 19, but Israel will become His holy nation, His special possession. They are uniquely dedicated to him. That's holy. 
again, holiness, therefore, it's not an intrinsically moral category, though as we go, we'll see that it has moral implications, but the priest's clothes were holy clothes. That is not saying something about the moral status of the priest's clothes, right? But it is saying that those clothes were set apart for some special purpose, that, they, that once they're consecrated, they're no longer common. They're no longer ordinary, everyday things, but they have a special use. It's like that fine china that you only bring out you know, once a year or something to that effect, right? There's this specialness to it. It's set apart. It's unique. Holiness is not righteousness. Uh, to be holy is not the same as being morally upright. Only God is intrinsically holy because God is transcendent. To become holy is to be set apart for God. It's to belong to him in a unique way. To have a holy status then, as we read through Leviticus, to have a holy status is to be able to enter into God's presence. Holiness enables you to draw near to a holy God. And the holier you are, the closer you could come. So the Gentiles are out of Israel's camp, out there somewhere. The Israelites were a holy nation, so they were camped around the tabernacle. But the priests were even holier, and they could come into the holy place. And the high priest was even holier, and he could come into the most holy place once a year. So we have the common, the ordinary, the everyday, the, the secular, which just means of this age. And we have the sacred, the holy. Then we have this other pair of words, clean and unclean. Uh, the common is divided up into these two categories, clean and unclean. Clean just means pure, whole, complete, right? not broken, not mixed. And yet it's more than that. It's acceptable. It's normal. It means you have nothing to hide. right? You have a clean conscience. Ed Welch talks about this, and he says to, to be clean is, is when nobody is looking at you funny or suggesting you don't belong. Right? You're clean. Clean as life as it should be. It's not disordered, but, but ordered. Clean is when, when boundaries haven't been crossed that shouldn't be crossed. Unclean is when something is wrong. When, when you don't quite fit, when the boundaries are blurred. Uh, in Israel, certain animals were unclean that didn't quite fit. Blood was unclean. Death was unclean. What do we label as unclean? What do you label as unclean? Who might you turn up your nose at? You know, anybody who fits our stereotype as normal is, is clean in our eyes. That's the way Leviticus would talk about it. But anybody that we would put on the fringe of society, we're declaring them unclean. Anybody we avoid, anybody we, we, we are treating them as if they were unclean. You know, Sometimes it's, it's people who are socially awkward or who smell funny or who are loud, right? These are the kinds of people we, we, just, we just step around or we avoid in the supermarket. We're treating them as if they were unclean, right? Untouchable. Unclean is the category of shame. Anytime you feel shame, you feel unclean, like you don't fit in or don't belong, like you're not normal. Whenever you... Whenever we feel that we don't fit in or belong, we feel unclean. Whenever others look down on us, they are treating us as if we were unclean. When we think about these four categories, right, 
holy and common and clean and unclean, the, the norm for life, right, the, the zero point, so to speak, is, is the common and the clean, right? You're, you're in the world, you're clean, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing different. That's, that's normal, common, clean. But holiness, both holiness and uncleanness, are different ways of being set apart from the norm, right? So the unclean, uh, when you're unclean, you're set apart because something's wrong, right? Something's wrong with you. You don't fit in the way you ought. But the holy also is set apart, right? But it's set apart in a different way. It's set apart in a good way. It's set apart in a glorious way, set apart to God. Of course, in Israel, these categories were applied to whole groups of people, right? So the Gentiles were considered unclean. The, the, the Jewish person was considered clean. The priests were considered holy. Right? The, the, the uncircumcised Gentiles were unclean. The circumcised was clean. And yet these, stat, these categories, they aren't always static, right? I mean, you can, you, one can move between the clean and the unclean, the holy and the common, right? Uncleanness can be caught. In Leviticus, touching a dead body or touching blood made you unclean. In life, if you've ever been sinned against, you may feel unclean. You may feel violated, we would say. Boundaries have been crossed that shouldn't have been crossed. It's not even your fault, but something wrong happened and you know it and you feel dirty as a result. If you associate with someone who is considered unclean or something that is considered unclean, people will begin to consider you unclean as well. Uncleanness can be caught. The language of becoming unclean in Scripture is, is being polluted, right? If you're polluted, you, you've become unclean. But it's possible to become clean again, right? You can be cleansed and sort of enter back into the norm of society your status can change. When the holy is treated as if it were common, it is profaned or, or desecrated, which is desacralized, right? It's no longer treated as sacred. God's name can be profaned, right? That's when you treat God's name, a holy thing, as if it were not holy, not special, not different from every other name. You're profaning the name of God. Of course, you can become holy as well in the scriptures. You can be consecrated. In Leviticus, holiness comes by water and blood and oil. All things by which God sets his people apart. We'll see as we go through Leviticus that frequently God commands his people to be cleansed with water or to make atonement by shedding blood or to be consecrated through anointing with oil. Water, blood, and oil cleanse and consecrate holy people and holy space to set them apart. We do the same kind of thing sometimes, right? We have dedication ceremonies, right? Where we dedicate a building to a particular use or dedicate a boat or something like that or naming ceremonies, right? That, that's, we're, we're setting something apart. We're consecrating it to a particular use, a particular purpose. And while in Israel, right, water, oil, and, and blood uh, maintain for Israel her holy status, more was needed. Israel had to obey. You, you read through the book of Leviticus, eventually you get to laws. Israel had to be holy as God is holy. She had to love her neighbor as herself. 
That, that, that verse so often quoted in the New Testament is found in the book of Leviticus of all places. A holy status must be followed by a holy life. Of course, once again, if you know the Old Testament story, you know that Israel failed. She neither kept her holy status nor did she live a holy life. And God eventually, again, ejected her from the holy land so that she would no longer defile his temple. And Isaiah laments over Israel. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. See, the nation had become unclean. So the temple, God's dwelling place, was destroyed because God could no longer dwell there because of the uncleanness of his people. It almost seems, right, as you read through Leviticus and you read all these laws, it almost seems as if God is setting his people up for failure. I mean, giving all these complicated rules about cleanness, don't eat this, don't wear that. What are we to do with it all? You know, now we're reading it, you know, thousands of years later, and we're trying to figure out how does this apply to me? Well, Leviticus is about drawing near to God, and, and it's, it's answering the question, how can I live with God in my midst, with God as my neighbor? And its answer is, well, be cleansed of your uncleanness, maintain a holy status, and live a holy life. But then we come to the New Testament, and Jesus comes as a holy God to dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And Jesus begins to say things like, the things that Leviticus declares unclean are not unclean. I mean, Jesus touches the unclean leper, and he doesn't rebuke the unclean woman who touches him. And Paul, too, he says that these old categories no longer apply. So Paul says that, that circumcised and uncircumcised, Jew and Greek, slave and free, that the categories of this present age don't matter. And think about how many distinctions we make between people around us. How many of those distinctions pertain only to this present life? That is, that they're, they're just distinctions sort of in the common realm. I mentioned some at the start, you know, rich and poor, cool and uncool, educated or uneducated, distinctions in dress or speech or looks. How often do we look down on someone as unclean because they, they have bad grammar or, or bad taste in clothes, or they smell funny, or they didn't grow up in church, and so they, they don't know all the churchy language. These are the kinds of distinctions of this present age, distinctions in the common realm, which, which don't matter in terms of our relationship to our Father. Jesus even goes so far as to say that all the foods that Leviticus says make one unclean, don't. He says it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean, but what comes out. Because what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart. And our hearts are the real source of our uncleanness. And here the language of uncleanness does take on a, a moral tone, right? We're no longer to focus on the distinctions of this age. But uncleanness has to do with, with how you live your life, with the desires of your heart, with whether you live for God or live for self. And, and, and think about it for a minute why is what Jesus says actually so much worse? Because you might be able to avoid dead things. You cannot eat shellfish. 
you can't avoid your heart, which means we are perpetually unclean. And Jesus came to cleanse us and to consecrate us to our Father, to move us out of the secular realm into the sacred, out of the common into the holy, so that we no longer belong to this world, but we belong to another. And remember, think about in, in Leviticus, the four aspects of how that happens. Consecration happens through water and blood and oil and obedience. Think about those things with respect to the work of Jesus. We'll look at these, uh, this a lot as we go, but just to sort of summarize it, think about washing with water. Acts twenty two sixteen says, Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Right? Baptism symbolizes the washing away of sin, which happens as we call on Jesus. By baptism, we are set apart from the world and brought into the church. Shedding of blood. The New Testament tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But 1 John uh, 7 to 9 says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. Or anointing with oil. When we turn to Jesus, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit, the New Testament tells us. Or even obedience to God's commands. Jesus brings us to God by his one act of obedience. We are holy because of the obedience of Jesus. And Jesus is making us holy. You know, Adam sinned in the beginning. He marred the image of God and lost his holy status. But we are being renewed after the image of God as we are being conformed to the image of Christ by the Spirit. So then we are now called as his people to live out that holiness in obedience to God. We read it in 1 Peter 1 earlier, which echoes Leviticus when it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be set apart from this world, because you belong to the God who is not apart from this world, the God who made the world. What does holiness look like for the Christian then, in light of Leviticus? Well, first it means recognizing that our status does not come from the things of this world. Our status is not about worldly distinctions. It's not about pay scale or race or gender or nationality. It's not about knowledge or beauty or strength or ability. Our status comes from Christ. As Paul says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. That's our status. We belong to Christ. We are in Christ. We are set apart to him. Being holy means being baptized into Christ's body and set apart from the world. It means being cleansed by Christ's blood. It means being anointed with Christ's spirit. And yes, it means being conformed to Christ's image. And so being holy as he is holy. And so don't be concerned with the distinctions merely of the present age, right? Trying to gain the status that this world has to offer. Don't avoid people and things because they might be unclean in the world's eyes. Rather, fight the unclean desires of the heart and the power of the Spirit. Seek to live in imitation of our Savior Jesus. Not to earn a status, not to gain a status, not even to maintain a status, but to live out of the status that is ours by faith. We are a holy people. 
now in Jesus. We are the royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. And we are God's treasured possession. Now let's live like it, live like it to his honor and glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would teach us to, to receive our status from you and not try to earn it by the way we live. And yet help us then to live out of it in a way that, that reflects your glory to the world and brings you honor as our holy God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.